Okay. We've only really touched the first um, piece of this, the meaningful cosmos. So is there anything you'd like to ask about or bring up or correct at this time? Yeah. Thank you. I am currently taking a kind of class in um, the stages of aging, which is largely attended by those of us who are aging, (laughs) Uh, with an emphasis on the latter stage. I myself am not a caregiver of elderly parents, but there are many in the room who were or are or feel they have the potential to do that. And there was a lot of angst about perhaps foregoing retirement years in the care of parents um, and the degradation of the body and mind that's involved in that. And so there's an implication that one is sacrificing or is called upon to sacrifice um, for this period of time And the other implication was that that is an interruption of um, the child coming to their own potentiality before they die, not to mention the costs and the the dreadedness of it all. So how can we uh, come to terms with that offering of a more sacred sacrifice? So your concern is that the caregivers feel that they are, in a way, missing out on their lives by not having enough time to... You're in the West. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I would... I don't, as I say, I don't really know what it's... Uh, you know, the requirements and the pressures I hear of them, but I'm not, I don't experience them in terms of, um, you know, one's life, livelihood. By and large, it's considered that um, looking after the elderly and, and the dying offers tremendous benefits to the person that does it. Uh, they're both developing a lot of the Brahma Vihara, kindness, compassion, uh, gladness uh, uh, and equanimity and they're also able to uh, in a way feel they are uh, contributing something that cannot be done by anything else but another human being mm, so it's called love <laughs> uh, so this make, makes the heart makes the heart great they're also looking very closely at, at the process of the breaking up of the body and trying learning from that. So these are considered great advantages. And I think perhaps one of the uh, things that people are caught in in this world, in, in the West particularly, is, is how much is required um, to develop in terms of knowledge, skills, skills base to sustain livelihood. We don't have the time to look after you elderly because you've got to learn this and earn that and pay for this and, and keep this thing going. So how that balances out, I don't know. But I would say that it's, uh, uh, you know, if, if to really in, in 
encourage people to to uh, not just I'm looking after my grandfather, but also my grandfather's giving me something, training me in something, developing something in myself within one's capacities to to you know, to manage. Uh, and of course, the early human model was that uh, for every elder there'd be at least three or four who would be, you know, taking it in turns because looking after an elder is is at least as difficult as looking after a baby. You know, we we go back to that. <laughs> and uh, I think one person is somewhat in, in, inadequate for to look after another because one person has to look after their own body and the other. So you need at least two or three. Uh, and that, that's definitely to be encouraged. So I've just, I've just been staying in a monastery in, in Canada and they the senior monk there, he had a, a monastery in New Zealand and his mother was living in, in Canada and then she was elderly and she had a fall. So he gave up the monastery and moved in to live with his mother, looked after her for 10 years. Um, you know, people would come offer food and stuff like that. He would get support from the local Buddhist group who would provide material support, but he was there. Uh, I think he would take, he'd get some time off on the weekend, but basically he'd stay there for, for 10 years. And he said it was, it was like non-stop metabomana. And he said it was just great. He came out feeling really good. And he had that chance to do so, you know. And he had that he was the primary, but then of course people supported him in doing it. And then they provided the material, you know, material support in his food and things like that. So I think the sense of what is, um, missing in the West is the extended web. You know, where ideally you know, have primary caregivers, then secondary caregivers are supporting the primary caregivers, so that the, the effect is, 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 is diluted, you know, that the weight is, is transferred, <laughs> rather than just carried by one person, it's transferred through a, a whole sequence of, of other people who take on a little bit and so the, the person, the caregiver isn't just carrying a mountain on their own. And that's also, the more that can be encouraged. Okay, you, you know, you can't live with this person day and day. Maybe you could come for the, a day or an hour, or you could support somebody else who can. So this also brings people together. And the building of networks, I feel, is, is, is really, really essential really essential human networks. This must be the only way we're going to survive. Because if there isn't a human network, what are you left with? You're left with basically pay somebody or a machine or a system to do it, and they don't really care that much. The um, bringing up of the celestial realms, for me, uh, 
I, I always encounter this same question, which is the taking it as a uh, metaphor for the sort of uh, mental life and then, of course, the possibility that there is uh, something being referenced here that is in some other way actual, not that the mental life is not. And um, to me, this is not so much a question of uh, you know, idle curiosity, but when I reflect on it for myself, or even more so when I share something like this with others, this particular discourse, for example, um, and I'm looking at the sequence of, you know, the uh, Donna, Sila, and so on through the celestial realms, and I interpret it this way. And I don't really talk about the celestial realms other than to say, well, I don't know, you know, but this is a way we can understand it. it I, I'm concerned about my own authenticity and... Uh, perhaps my own limited understanding. And I'm wondering if you, because you used, you just referred to it entirely as a, you know, in a psychological framework. And yet you have obviously a very strong faith in the totality of the teachings. Uh, I'm wondering if you could reflect on that, Bhante. Hmm. Well, I would say, you know, we have these texts and teachings and when I read them, it seems to be no doubt that these these are not just purely mental constructions. They're, they're out there. Uh, and also I have no doubt that most people don't access them. Uh, but I also know um, that people do access them and have um, ways of discerning and even communicating with, with this, these other realities, these other levels. Um, so you know, I think quite a lot of our reality is inferred. But we don't consider it that way. Mm. Some of it's become extremely material, economic forces, for example. Has anybody seen an economic force moving around? <laughs> You know, and, and often the the, you know, the forces of good and evil, um, and well, you know, eventually we say that whatever occurs that we experience, we experience it through this experiencing system. So we can't really separate the mind from experience. So. Could we say this is just some subtle level of mind? I would say that it's a level of experience that can be entered through a subtle quality of mind that perhaps most people, or a particular way of attention that most people have not generated or don't have any guidelines on. But I am fairly confident because I, you know, that there are people who do and can do that. So it's out there, uh, and whether it can intercede in our worldly affairs. Uh, again, you know, because I can't see it myself, I can't say, but uh, uh, 
there are lots of mysterious so-called accidents and good strokes of good fortune that are, that are happening to all of us. That, that it's out, something's out there doing stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, and if we look at things, uh, obviously um, the way these experiences, these immaterial domains are referenced, is, is cultural. So the references to devas and spirits, what we might call energy qualities, energetic formations. Um, uh, however, and I, I do sense they're out there. But if you don't, if you don't have access to them, you just say, this I do not know. Um, and essentially, for the realization of Dhamma, you don't need to. You don't need to know because it all comes down to whether there are or aren't, do good, refrain from doing evil, and good stuff's going to happen to you. <laughs> now, whether that's because of the devas are resonating with you or just because of some psychological law, you know, there's never a case where actually the devas or the spirits impart a teaching. They listen respectfully to it. You, know, you can get through the whole teaching without a single deva. <laughs> You can do the whole path without it. But I think in that particular context, I, I get a sense that at that time, people did experience these things. They certainly still do in Thailand. You know, ghosts are not hypothesis. They are reality. Um, they did experience it for one reason or another. And therefore, it was necessary to bring them in. You couldn't, you couldn't sidestep what most people felt strongly was there. And so the essential thing was, well, okay, this is the way you move through it. And that's what you need to know. You need to have to drive the car. You don't need to understand every creature in the woods. Yeah. Ajahn, I wonder if you could share your, uh, your understanding of, um, or elaborate on two, two parts of the, the right view that... Um, one, you mentioned the word sacrifice is a mm -hmm. translation. If you could just speak about the, the Pali and, and tease that out a little bit more is one. And then two, um, this part that says there are beings who are spontaneously reborn. Mm. Well, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, the spontaneous rebirth bit refers to, there are certain suttas where the Buddha talks about, uh, like if you can uh, say someone who's cultivated, um, say stages of realization, can at the breaking of the body, they're in an immaterial domain, and they don't have to, they don't have to go through a kind of human body to get born again. They can, they can take a higher rebirth from that particular plane. You know, so they go into the formless realms and you can work out stuff there and you can... So, so I, I sense and it's, 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 it's rather than the nine-month thing. <laughs> the slow way, you know. You, you, you can flip. So sacrifice, uh, actually I've, yeah, that's, you've caught me again because I haven't looked at the Pali for that word, um, so I can't tease it out. But I'll, I'll try to 
track it down. Mm. It'd be interesting to see what it what it what it actually is. Mm. My question is about the precepts, and it has to do with um, what we do when we know that we're not practicing the precepts perfectly and that our mind is muddied by them. My specific situation has to do with food and eating more than I know is good for me and not mm -hmm. finding a way to stop that. Mm -hmm. What to do? Well, that's like, is that what you understand as a precept? Well, I think of the precepts in general being about moderation and about um, doing what doesn't muddy the mind. Um, yeah, yeah, but it, it, the, pre, the five precepts are uh, a fairly manageable standard. They don't, don't, uh, they don't deal with, uh, with eating more than you need. I, I think of the, the fifth, which is specifically about alcohol, but it's, but isn't it in general? No, it's not? No. Oh. Okay. Now you be careful with those precepts because we can evolve uh, kind of abstract perfections That's out true. of religious manageable standards. And this tends to be the theme uh, in the Western mind, particularly, uh, whereby we we abstract wonderful principles of virtue, and then don't live up to them. <laughs> the Buddha says, "Have manageable that you do live up to better, because <laughs> then you feel happy rather than constantly, oh goodness, I did that wrong." You know, I didn't say the right thing. And mostly, you know, precepts about what you don't do. And, and to be taken pretty much at face value. Now you can, of course, extend that. So there's, if you like, there's a benchmark and you can extend uh, and take on the deeper meanings of how you feel that in accordance with your capacities, your life situation, um, your developments, and so when one has, most of us have certain addictive tendencies, clinging, that's normal for humans, that are difficult to, to get through. Yeah? And there's no point moralizing about it. That doesn't do it. You know, uh, moralize, you know moralizing is not the same as sila. Uh, uh, so with our you know, we, we do what we can, and what we find ourselves compulsive about, you know, well, actually, you've got to go to a deeper level than this. Um, this isn't just because I don't have much control over it. <laughs> what I do have control over, I will keep those lines. What I don't have, when I find myself swept away with, I need to develop some insight, some resources to get into that. Like, why do I do this when I feel degraded, I feel unhappy with it, I feel I let myself down. Why do I keep doing it? What's happening? You know, and we need to look at the 
the uh, vacuities in our lives, the uh, emptiness in our lives, the pathologies in our lives, and start to work on those. And that's the process of really the hindrances and um, deeper insight. Yeah. I have a question about practice and um, what we're talking about this morning is um, is just really current to to what's happening for me in my practice in that when I sit down and I sit and I, I sit at night um, there's a flatness to my practice that feels like sometimes I almost feel embarrassed by it that I don't have this sense of richness that I'm that I know is there but that I just don't seem to access and, and I think it has something to do with sort of with right view or self view mm. that is making it difficult for me to build confidence mm. um, and I know that I'm experiencing it through my lens, and yet I feel like there's something that I'm not seeing or getting to um, mm. that's preventing me. Mm. Mm. Well, it's quite um, normal to feel flat because probably quite a bit of the time we're living in a rather flat universe. Um, <laughs> and just, you know, you're expected to be flat. So, you know, what recollection is about, recollection, uh, just referring to it this morning early, was beginning to, you know, sort of inflate (laughs) the universe from the flat realm to the realm of meaning. So you might, meaning, meaning can several things. What is um, beautiful? Uh, what is lovely? So Kalyana is is one of the key words. Kalyana, the Dhamma is called Kalyana. It's beautiful, it's beautifying, it's admirable, it's good, it feels good. It's a very, these are not abstract. They're actually felt experiences of the lovely, the beautiful. And the beauty is perhaps an important word to reference because beauty is entirely subjective. And subjectivity is where you find meaning. It means it means something to me. Yeah. Uh, whereas it could be true, but doesn't mean anything to me. You know, somebody gives me some law of physics, and I go, "Wow, fantastic!" <laughs> so <laughs> it's true, but it's not meaningful for me. Meaning is when it hits me, when it touches me. So we need to uh, reference and build up a kind of a library or a lexicon or of what is meaningful and flip through those. You know, when you sit, just try to train yourself to bring to mind, say, um, any acts of goodness that have come to me, any acts of courtesy, politeness, generosity, sharing, uh, forgiveness that have come to me today. Um, any acts that I may have participated in where I felt, you know, I could have been cheap there, but I didn't. I could have got away with it, but I didn't. I could have skimped on that, but I didn't. Yeah. I could have taken an easy way, but I didn't. Yeah. So you bring to mind these things in recollection. There's something to be grateful for, something to feel a sense of mudita, gladness, in oneself and in others. 
we're living in a potent domain. And then even today. So I think this is, myself, I think this is quite an important cultivation to spend at least 10 minutes just flipping through, you know, any anything. <laughs> Good, lovely, harmless, generous, kindly, you know, uh, whatever. What is beautiful uh, in, in others and in yourself? And then perhaps one with a deeper recollection, what is more of a long-term quality of that was a really that was really good what we did then or the, the Buddha or my teacher or my Sangha they inspire they delight they uplift I feel that's meaningful for me and I'm I'm participating in that so that you you kind of you 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 deeply participate on a meaning level I'm in that that's what rings for me and uh, and then this really begins to um, help to integrate one's inner meaning with one's outer domain. That is, if I have uh, beings that I feel care and responsible and respect for, I can go visit them and connect with them and talk with them and offer to them or, you know, whatever I can. Therefore, every time I do that, I'm, you know, I'm gaining some, I'm gaining some more ground. <laughs> that not only will possibly they will be nice to me, but that's kind of secondary. I'll have something that, you know, when my body breaks up, I can think, ah, oh, I remember that. Yes, yes. And so, you know, what one's mind dwells in is, is where it goes forth is where it proceeds onwards. So the more that we can embed our, our value, our inner value into this physical domain, then again, the more firmly uh, one has entered the world of meaning. And then when you sit, you can, you can really take it into your body. Of, um, so in one of these presentations, it will say, and again, one might be mystified with it, um, you know, it goes from keeping the precepts to experiencing bodily calm. And and well, how does it? You know, how does it? How does it? How does doing that do this? But that's the that's cultivation. That's bhavana. Cultivation means you 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 in, you know you keep integrating that into your embodied experience. And I have the understanding that joy is really, or, you know, gladdening the mind is a requisite to concentration. And I think sometimes that's maybe where, it, like when I, when I look at that sort of line, that's, I think, where I'm getting kind of maybe stuck. Yeah. Gladdening the mind, well, recollection, uh, what this whole shrine devotion thing's about, if you, if you, get familiar with it and it becomes helpful, then in a way that's that's where it is. You you have something that you, you tap into and you access the results of your practice and your Kalyanamita, your spiritual friends, and you're sitting there in that and you feel glad. And there's very li- very little rational logic for that. It's just what happens. 
on a heart level. Um, so we need to, um, you know, one of the, again, one of the unspoken um, themes here is, is generosity is a matter of heart, not a matter of of paying. Uh, it's a matter of heart. So dana sila brings you very much into the terrain of the heart, and that's the place of practice. So if there's a deep sadness in the heart, and 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 that seems to be what's preventing that that requisite from allowing you into that next space, then that's where then you would you would spend time there with that. Deep sadness. Yeah. Mm, yes and no. Essentially, with these, there are often there are. There are Kind of curtains or or, or obscurations um, that people encounter as they drop beneath the surface, and one of them will be a sense of sadness, a guilt could be one of them, feeling inadequate, guilty, regretful, fear, feeling I don't want to let go of it, I just feel inadequate, and these are, these I'm, I'm verbalising what may not be verbal, but just as a resonance. Uh, and that that's that's the that's at the border and if you cross through borders you know what it feels like because <laughs> you go through fear and grief <laughs> uh, but the, the, uh, the but then actually what is necessary for tra- for transiting that border is just to come into your into your body like your soles of your feet the palms of your hand your spine and stand there, and this is what the Buddha did at his moment of awakening, touched the earth. So there's all this terrible stuff going on, very frightening, very creepy, very nasty, and, you know, again, in the suttas that's presented as it's out there, but it's also in here. You know, we come to that borderline and it's something, no, I am, I'm here. You know, this stuff is happening, but I have this. I am standing on this piece of ground, which is my hereness, my hereness, and uh, that's reality. The rest of it is just the existence, and two must not be confused. Reality is here; everything else is transitory. Uh, so, meditation. One of the maybe point I would make is, I would suggest that difference between recollection is is the path to taking you closer to where your existence, which means the conditioned phenomena, can line up to give you enough strength and calm to return just to here, which is very simple and very open and nameless, uh, doesn't change. And the qualities of recollection, a lot of the path factors are just to get you through this very tricky border. (laughs) And when you're at the border and you're not getting through, it's best to back off. And, okay, let's think things through, walk up and down, um, be with myself, think things through, talk to somebody, chant. You know, you you do, that's what ritual is for, is is to get you through that. And ritual is not the only way, but that's one of them. If you're on your own, that's the point of it. 
you know, why, why these things have become so important is people traveling, they're on their own, they haven't got their sangha with them, so they've got to take it in a little box <laughs> and, you know, impregnate that with their, their meanings and they pop it up and then you've got to, you've got to you add water, you know, <laughs> which is your own faith and confidence and trust and then it will start to unfold. Mm. Yep. Thank you so much. And I'm trying to um, bring this really clear. You, you've brought it very clear, but to bring it um, forward to medical practice. Um, next weekend, I'm part of a narrative medicine workshop. So that whole part of medical humanities and and narrative and that way of not telling other or suggesting too directly to other physicians how to do something, but to shift things in this more human connected way so that caregivers and people we care for resonate in this and how to do it clearly. It's so it gets thrown too quickly into the material world of fixing. So. I'm not asking clearly, but I'm looking mm-hmm. for your clarity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, fixing is not, um, it's, it's, it's a temporary thing. <laughs> we can fix things temporarily, and, and sometimes that's, that's great. But long term, it's, we're, we're unfixable. <laughs> And the more one can impart something that's uh, empathic and somatic, then that helps us through this difficult transition. Very important. The more one can impart calm, cheerfulness, openness, uh, and directly wish to be with the person. These these things have an effect. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, seeing a couple of little stories. A friend of mine, she was working as a hospice and her job was to go to people who were dying and just to be there, hold their hand or whatever, be with them. And so one day she was called to a hospice and it was the, the mother had just given birth and the mother had died in giving birth and the baby was dying. So she had to go with the, um, the husband who was, you know, completely shattered as you can imagine. So there's just little babies there, you know, it's only been born. It's, he says, well, you know, she, it's, you know, it's not gonna live very long. So he was just frozen. Um, and so she said, well, would you like to touch and so oh yeah so as he put his his finger out his hand out little baby lifted his finger he could sense that this is newborn he immediately senses somatic presence he lifts his finger to touch and then passes away 
Yeah. So just that sense of how how primary the need for touch is, and how simple, and how often removed it is, because you don't want to be infected with somebody. <laughs> you know, or we use a, use a machine or a pill, but just a touch. Hmm. Another story, since you're in this area of work, a friend of mine and his, his, his mother said when her mother was, uh, well, she was apparently, you know, comatose, or, so she was in this non-communication, non-moving state for, um, I think, four years. And every two weeks, the mother... You know, with her daughter, would go to her bedside, sit with her, bring flowers, talk to her, and just hold her hand, and nothing happened. Come back two weeks later, the same things every two weeks, something like that, four years. And well, there was nothing there, you know? And then they, she got the message, you know, we think your mother is actually completing, passing away. So she went back to, to the mother's bedside, and, this, you know, this person been in a coma, opened her eyes and said, thanks. You know, she, there had been some transmission, which nobody could track, but clearly the, the apparently out of it being could still register. There was another being there who generated goodwill, who wanted to be with me, and that meant a lot. You know, so so one should, you know, breaking up of the body is indeed frightening, terrible, uh, perhaps even disgusting. Uh, and this is where, of course, you know, they put so much good emphasis on contemplating, you know, the, the gruesome aspects of the body. You know, flesh, sinews, guts, blood, pus, mucus, because then when you get to see the real thing breaking out, you think, well, there's nothing new, unusual. <laughs> I just had mine sealed in a bag for a while, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, you can get handle it. And you're not kind of... You're not freaking out. And then, you know, wanna, then you can, you know, give what is so hard to give. What is so hard to give, you can give it. The willingness to be present and to move in rather than recoil. And that's the human... That's the magic gift. That's the, one of the greatest offerings, to be with the sick and to be with the, the dying. Then sense world breaks up. And then what really counts is, you know, the immaterial domain. And that's where we can most profitably share what seems to be just a theory in my head. If you've cultivated it, it's not a theory at all. It's actual real stuff that people can pick up and discern and feel comforted by. That's, yeah, that's, that's bhavana, cultivation. Okay, yeah. I didn't sleep at all last night, so before I ask my question, I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> but, you know, I'm getting older. The body is breaking up. I you know, didn't live the first 40 years of my life very well. I've tried hard since then to do a better job, but 
Recently, it's become very obvious that the world has taken, or ne maybe it never stopped taking a dark turn. Um, maybe I was just kidding myself. But, um, you know, it's, here I am, you know, I laid it all out at work. My shoulder broke down, I had to have surgery, I'm fat again. Um, you know, practice has been sort of stuck for a long time. And, uh, you know, how do you, you know, suck up the energy to lose weight again, get back in shape. I'm going to break through it all with my practice. I mean, it, it feels a little bleak these days. I mean, not sleeping didn't help, but I just thought I'd be real for a minute. Well, I think this is where you go and visit virtuous recluses in Brahmins. <laughs> and just suck up some of their stuff. <laughs> that helps, gives one the boost. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you, I imagine, and I, you know, as I know you, I'm pretty certain you're in a domain which is, by and large, uh, uh, draining you rather than, rather than replenishing you. So it's, it's, uh, it's not nourishing you. It's it's draining you, and it's a weight, and it, it uh, that's the working world. Um, well, I mean, some people get, you know, they can work in things that are more ethically attuned or more companionable. Uh, so remember that that is a world that domain is not going to generate what you need, and therefore one must be quite sober about that you know, there's, a, there's a cost and how much can I pay to that and how much what do, I, what do I need to do to compensate for that and if I can't I don't have the momentum when I'm tired after work to get it going you know I better get somewhere where I can, they can give me a shot <laughs> essentially put it crudely uh, what retreats are for, what this is about, what association with um, uh, what sitting groups are about. They are life support systems. Mm. Yeah. And then also they just help you to just remember, you know, one may have been confused and foolish for 30, 40 years. Yeah, okay, but then you think of the 10 years you haven't been, or the 15 years or the 20 years you haven't been, and you keep digging into that. You don't dig into the rubbish, you dig into the good stuff. And to train one's mind, the burden of guilt is, uh, of course, a weighty one, and, and, and again, we get addicted to it. Um, it's a strange addictive thing, where you just go into all the things that are wrong with you, and this is almost a re strange reflex. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand it, but I know it happens. Mm. Mm. And it's what recollection is for, is to deliberately turn towards qualities in yourself and in your domain that are beautiful, that are lovely, and that are worthy. Yeah. Uh, 
learn to train oneself to do that. Because it's, uh, that's karma. And there's a, there's a mental karma, bad mental karma, is to keep projecting yourself into the rubbish. <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes we seem to not have much influence of effect over that, but you, you have to recognize this is, this is just a, a really um, causative principle. If you keep recollecting what's wrong with you, that's exactly what you will be. <laughs> if you, you know, it's not to say that you've been flawless all your life, but there has been that, a transgressions have been committed, I have seen the error, great. I have made a, I have made a definite effort to move out of that. Very, very good. Uh, I am inclining towards the good, excellent. You keep turning that way. And again, you know, it, it's it's a, sometimes the matter the momentum keeps of guilt keeps turning. Well, you've got to push against it. And if you don't remember it yourself, this is what Kalyanamita is for. Friends who will remind you of it, and you can participate with meaningful and lovely occasions, so that you you then take that. You know, is that that's that's this is the foundational stuff. And so what I'm emphasizing this time is foundational work. Recollection is a foundation. You know, it may seem like, well, this isn't, you know, jhana or emptiness, but this is the legs. <laughs> this is the body. And that must be developed, otherwise the other stuff isn't going to happen anyway. Yeah. I don't... Um I'm wondering if you would reflect a little bit on the word sacred. For me, um, in my work, creating sacred spaces with people is important. And for me, it's mostly a subjective experience. And I'm wondering, we're talking kind of about inner feel, an inner space of sacred versus, a, say, a sacred space. It's kind of a mixed terrain. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well... Subjectivity is something we all have. So there's such a thing as collective subjectivity. And that naturally is something that has to be negotiated and cultivated. Like, this is meaningful for, for me, how about for you? Uh, until there comes to be some kind of congruence of, yeah, you know. Uh, therefore, we can, uh, um, and you can establish Images, icons, physical scenarios, sounds, sights, you know, anything in the sensory domain you can then use as stage props for, for that. And, you know, so it can be quite fluid, but, uh, you know, what, what, would, what would be the... It would be quite interesting to almost have a little questionnaire. What kind of things do you see? Do you see light, space, or does it seem dark or bright? Or bright. Does it seem uh, soft or hard? Oh, soft. Does it seem, you know, and you might, it's interesting, you might come to a, 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 a sort of image, congruence, uh, and then, well, what particularly, anything more specific you'd like to add to that? You know, and you might build something up with that. So there is a collective subjectivity which is our culture. 
Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to recognize that it's there already, but our culture can be steered by um, not very sacred uh, qualities that we all collectively uh, adhere to or um, participate in. Mm. So, yeah. And something based on, you know, harmlessness must be sacred. Generosity must be sacred. That's why it gets, these are very foundational things that most people resonate with. Uh, honesty must be sacred. And we all know that. And you think, why? Well, it is. 